I feel like we're kind of like intensive. Is this, are we okay? I mean, I know it's the last large group, but I mean, how are we feeling? Um, if this could be an emoji, what would this be? Um, it's a very profound question. So as you contemplate that, let me introduce myself um, or reintroduce myself. I am Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. We are a Christian group here on campus that exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever and whoever you are. Um, and so we really do thank you for coming, and we really want to be a place that any kind of person can come to, no matter what your scene is on campus, no matter what your personal background is, even no matter where you are with Jesus or Christianity. We hope that whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, a believer or a spiritual skeptic, that you would feel welcomed here. Um, and I also want to give a special welcome to the seniors. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, really appreciate that. We have a lot of cake for you, so I hope you came ready to eat some cake, uh, a sheet of it, in fact. And then uh, also thank you if you're new, if this is your first time, or maybe your, one of your first times. Thanks so much for coming. Okay, so this semester in large group, we uh, studied a series of foundational stories about the lives of Abraham and Sarah, and we looked from Genesis 11 all the way through Genesis 22, and we kind of marched through most of those verses in all of those chapters. And all along, I propose that this series of stories is really significant or foundational for two reasons. The first reason is that the story of Abraham and Sarah is at the heart of three of the five major world religions. The monotheisms, what are called the Abrahamic faiths. Shocking. Uh, that's Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. The second reason I think it's worth studying Abraham and, and Sarah, and these are so foundational, is they've served for multiple cultures, for multiple centuries as sort of a lodestar, a, a way of an invitation to understand what human faith and divine intervention look like in everyday life. So tonight we're actually going to depart from the book of Genesis. As you saw, we're moving into the letter to the Romans. We're just going to look at one example, one way that one individual actually interprets and applies, shows and tells us what it means to step into and make use of the lives of Abraham and Sarah in our lives. And so, as we just read, we'll study the way the Apostle Paul does this, the way the Apostle Paul applies Abraham and Sarah to the first century church in Rome, but also, especially in verse 23, you see this emphasis to us, okay, and us in Davidson College even in the 21st century. So I'm going to hope that this walk through uh, the letter to the Romans, chapter 4, will give us a few takeaways, old enduring truths to keep on our hearts and to etch into our minds. Um, and whether that's just like for another round of finals, okay, yet another, um, final papers, final exams, or maybe just as you kind of think about, kind of crack um, the planner to look at the summer, um, or for our seniors, I just pray that you can keep some of these old truths before you as you go out from here. So we're going to take a look at some of them. But before we lay out these truths, would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for the way that you have brought everyone here in this room, no matter where they are with you, no matter where they are with themselves right now. Um, so many different emotions are probably going through each individual, um, just about what today felt like, um, what's going on with family and health and school, what's going on with you, uh, whether you feel um, real or not, whether this feels real or not. Uh, or worthwhile or not. And I pray that you just be with us in that honest moment and that you'd meet us wherever we are. 
that you'd help us not to hide from you, that you'd help us and to turn to you and to be loved by you. And I pray that this sermon would be, uh, this talk would be a way of encountering you and knowing you better, that Jesus, you'd be more believable and more beautiful to us uh, in the eyes of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, the plays of Arthur Miller are kind of always under revival, right? I mean, it doesn't matter sort of where you are, um, New York, Europe, Canada, Tokyo. Um, I don't know if they do a lot of revivals of plays in Tokyo. I'm guessing. Um, But anyway, so they're always kind of under revival. And, you know, plays like The Crucible, Death of a Salesman are going to kind of be constantly um, taken back up and kind of extend beyond the American 25th. 20th century that they're set in. Okay, there's sort of there's a sort of timelessness to them. Uh, according to the New Yorker magazine critic Hilton Owls, they resonate with a global significance. That is like Miller's plays are not just about one kind of person in one era. They're about kind of what it means to be human and what it feels like to be human. One such play that got revived at least once recently, about 10 years ago in New York, is After the Fall. It's like a lesser known Miller play. Uh, the play after the fall is heavily autobiographical. Arthur Mill had not written a play for seven years. His first play he had written for seven years. It was three years after he got divorced from Marilyn Monroe, true, true story, and two years after she died, tragically. And so this is his first play after all of that going on. And it becomes he kind of puts a lot of himself into the character of Quentin. Quentin is this like lead character who's like a mouthpiece for Miller. He's a twice divorced, just like Miller, and this time a lawyer instead of a playwright who's waiting in an airport for his newest love, Uh, this newest lady, Holga, a German archaeologist who he's waiting for in Adelwood Airport Transit Lounge. So the play opens with this really famous monologue where Quentin is addressing the audience like a would-be listener, this absent person who's assumed by most people to be God. And this is what he says. This is how he summarizes his life up to this point. The lawyer Quentin. You know... More and more, I think that for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or smart. Then what a good lover, then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or what the hell ever. But underlying it all, I see now there is a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. That is such an interesting heartfelt confession, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, haven't we all felt something like this at one point in our lives? Some of the time, at least, like, think about it this way. Whether you think the sum of your life feels like one big argument before an occupied bench, right? A bench that presses a series of judges, a series of judges beginning with parents and moving to peers and friends and professors and then significant others and maybe employers past, present, and future, and maybe even God himself. We're arguing the sum of our existence before this bench, or this feeling applies if you're more like Clinton or Quentin, Quentin, or even Arthur Miller. The sum of your life looks like, maybe feels like, one big argument for an empty bench. 
an endless argument with oneself, the pointless litigation of existence. Regardless, there's some sense in which every human being feels the cosmic weight of trying to justify our existence. To prove that we're worth it, that we're valuable, that we're qualified, that we're important. This often unspoken weight falls upon everything we do on a daily basis, whether it's trying to prove that we're brave or smart or wise or powerful, in the words of Arthur Miller, or making good grades, achieving our goals, enhancing our sex appeal, being authentic, and at the very least, maintaining a improved social media presence. <laughs> okay? In our global information age of limitless possibilities, this is a quote from Jason Harris, the freedom to be anything has turned into the expectation to be everything. The freedom to be anything has turned into the expectation to be everything. And this relentless pressure leads us, like Quentin, to a youthful pride or a disastrous despair or this sort of volatile back and forth between pride and despair. In chapter 4 of his letter to the Romans, Paul actually presses into, he digs into this feeling, this cosmic weight that we're all under, this pressure we all feel, especially this time of year, especially in this bubble known as Davidson. And Paul tells us something simple and profound and worth repeating the rest of our lives. And it's this. It's mostly clearly put in verses 23 through 25. The heavenly bench is not empty. Okay? And the verdict over the sum of our entire lives is always and forever these words. Not guilty. Innocent. Righteous. Worth it. Valuable. So significant. Beloved. And all we've got to do, all we must do, is believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. The Lord who delivered over Jesus for our trespasses and resurrected him for our justification in the words of verse 25 okay so paul is making this big case and it's kind of a big case about who we are and what we're about and he's inviting us to observe it then participate in it and what has become a very familiar story for many of us who've been here this semester that is how does god deal with abraham and how does abraham deal with uh, with god okay that histo- that is the historical abraham in the new testament becomes this sort of like paradigm like a proof of how God also deals with us. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? Okay. A relationship characterized by a most important word, justify, or justification. Are we tracking with this? Lawyer Lee, Arthur Miller, we kind of tracing the dots. Where's he going? (laughs) Okay. Uh, And so Paul is actually going to give me four fundamental takeaways, four old enduring truths for all of us, but especially for our seniors, to hug to their hearts, and to tattoo on our minds, okay? And these are the four, and they're on your outline. Verses one through three tell us justification is an old road. It's an old road, okay? Second, verses three through five tells justification is an undeserved gift. Third, justification is a relationship, a state of being, verses 16 through 17. And fourth and finally, verses 18 through 22, justification is forever. Justification is forever. So... As is custom, we're going to begin at the beginning, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and why justification is such an old road. Okay? So it's actually interesting. If you read the letter to the Romans, you get to chapter 4, you'll realize that chapter 3, that chapter 4 is sort of a rehash, a reinvestigation of what 
at the end of chapter three, Paul has already kind of explained. There's like really not much new in the advancement of the main points of the argument. Okay, Paul is actually rehashing these. And the only thing he's doing differently is he's kind of placing the example, placing, proving all of his points in the life and times of Abraham. That's all he's doing. Okay? And so um, the question is, like, why, Paul? <laughs> like, why do this? What's the point of actually um, grounding all of these things you've already said in the life of Abraham? Like, what's, what's with that? Like, why not just skip Romans chapter 4 and go to chapter 5? Okay, we got the gist in the end of chapter 3. Why are we doing this? And the answer, I think, is that Paul wanted his audience to understand that justification is not a novelty item. It's not like a shot glass souvenir. Okay? It's an old, old road that goes all the way back to the beginning. Okay? And this is what he means. Paul desires his original audience and us to actually know that justification, what we've been talking about with verdicts in some of our lives, is not is has been always related to his people and it's not an invention of Paul or the early church. He's saying it goes all the way back into the beginning when when God was with people and how he related to people from the very beginning. Okay? But this is also significant for two reasons because of audiences. It's important to Paul's original first century Roman audience because it includes lots of different kinds of people, but especially Jewish Christians, okay? Jewish Christians familiar with the Old Testament, and for this particular group of people, it was especially important to say that justification, being right with God, declared right with God, right with ourselves, right with the world, right with others, actually had to do with faith and not with the Old Testament law, like circumcision or keeping the other commands. That someone, the man in the Old Testament, Abraham, actually abided by faith, and that was the basis of his relationship. And that was extremely significant. So Paul's basically saying this. Like Abraham couldn't and didn't actually get on God's good side with good behavior. Does that make sense? Okay. And so why are we trying to get on good God's good side? Why are we trying to get on everyone else's good side by doing good things? That's his, that's his question for us coming out of these verses. But secondly, I think even more pointedly to our audience, uh, God, Paul is proving that God related to Abraham the same way he now relates to us. Okay, He's also making a point we desperately need to hear. We've got this whole controversy. I, don't, I can't tell you, I hear this probably on a weekly basis, that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Okay, That uh, the heretic Marcion has won in some ways culturally. That we seem to think that there's a difference, okay, between the God of the Old Testament, the time of Abraham, and the exact is is not the exact same as the God of the New Testament, our time. Like you know, the Old Testament God is like mean and hangry, hangry for blood, okay. And the New Testament God is just sort of lovey dovey, you know, literally dovey. Um, with I know I'll be here all night. I'll be here all night. Well, actually, just an hour. Okay, so well, 30 minutes, hopefully. Um, so anyway. But, you know, the God revealed in Jesus is the same as the God who reveals himself to Abraham, right? Okay? Jesus' death and resurrection, read about in the New Testament, fulfill old, old promises given to the people of God that we see in the, New, the Old Testament, that are first made in the Old Testament. This means that, like, characters like Abraham and Sarah are actually not just, like, good examples or bad examples. They're right? like people that we're supposed to sort of, like, modulate our behavior based on. Okay? They're real historical people like us who need real rescue like us. 
And that's super important. And that here's what this means. Okay, theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. Okay, that fact lets Christians read the story of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, and all the characters in the Old Testament book of Genesis as their own story, as an earlier act in the great drama that reached its climax in the Messiah Jesus and has now opened up to embrace the whole world. Okay, two points. What's the point of those, saying all that? We can learn a lot about ourselves and a lot about God by reading the Old Testament. We don't need to avoid it. We don't need to explain it away. Um, you know, like compared to the Old Testament, the New Testament's like a, a pamphlet, like a brochure. Okay, there's a lot of good stuff there, but the Old Testament has a lot also to offer. Okay, second point, people like Paul did not make up how to be justified. God has always forgiven and rejoiced over those people who believe that he forgives and rejoices over people. Okay, that's sort of the basis of everything, okay? We following old road. Okay, point one, we just looked at the old road. We're going to look at point two. Okay, what does it mean? How does God forgive and rejoice over us even when we don't measure up, even when we're at our worst? Okay, it's justification is not just an old road, old road, point one. It's also an undeserved gift, point two, okay? So Abraham, uh, it's, it's actually so hard to believe that this is how it works, right? It makes, it makes sense in our lives. It's hard to believe that like, just kind of trusting the gods this way makes a lick of difference. And it's, we're not the only ones who struggle with this. About the time that Paul writes the letter to the Romans, there's these well-meaning, very religious people a couple centuries before who airbrush Abraham's life okay, in order to make his righteousness make more sense. Listen to the way that the Book of Jubilees, 2nd second, second century B.C. puts it. Book of Jubilees. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Look, like several of us here, Paul has actually read the stories of Abraham and Sarah, and what does he say to all this? Hogwash, okay? Like, you know, whatever whatever crazy sentiment you want to say. Kerfluffle, okay? Like, whatever, whatever you want to say, okay? Abraham pimped his wife out to sexual slavery two times. Okay? Abraham laughed in God's face about God's plan that he revealed to him and him alone. Okay? Abraham slept then married Hagar just because she was a baby-making machine. He did all of that. Where is that? How does that square with being perfect? And of being well-pleasing and obedience all the days of his life. Okay? Not to mention that Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, quoted in verse 3 of Romans 4, says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay? Not only is there no mention of perfection in all of his deeds, or well-pleasing righteousness all the days of his life, the Greek word translated counted means to be given what one does not own. <laughs> it literally, in the Greek, means given something that you don't own. Okay? In ancient business documents, like old, like you know, like the Roman Empire Target receipts, okay, that we've discovered, okay, the Greek word elogisthe, or counted, was actually a bookkeeping term used for crediting payment to an account. So I'm going to say it this way: um, counted was like getting store credit. It was like getting a gift card. That's how it works, okay without having to pay for it. 
That's the whole point. Like you've been given something for free that actually purchases something else, that actually buys something that you can't possibly buy. So like spiritually put, this is what that means. Abraham was counted right with God, with himself, with the universe, with others as an undeserved gift from God, not as some kind of earned paycheck or wages. Does that make sense? Okay. Abraham was not smart enough. He was not nice enough. He was not a good enough friend. He was not perfectly good at keeping all the rules, nor was he even good at being good. Okay? Contrary to the book of Jubilees. According to verse 5, he was, you and I are, the opposite. Verse 5 tells us that God justifies the ungodly. And that his faith, the ungodly person's faith, is counted as righteousness. And verse 25 tells us the object of that faith is the God who counts his son Jesus the only truly innocent person to ever live. He counts him as guilty so that he can count people like us who are guilty as innocent. That's kind of what the cross means. That's what this is all about. But here's where I unpack that, because I think that's probably pretty basic to some of us. Most of us don't intuitively get that. Is that fair? Okay, you think you do, I think I do, we don't. Okay, let's just be real straight up about it. Okay. We don't understand what it means to have a single relationship based on trusting and not trying. We don't get what it means to have a single relationship on an infinite amount of favors and not a scarcity of goodwill. A lot of you grew up like I did. Okay? A lot of you share the same space. Well, you all share the same space as I do. Okay? Davidson. With unwritten rules about how to be liked. Okay? Unspoken mantras like work hard always equals success. Okay? And an uncertainty that people really enjoy being around you if you didn't produce something that helps them out. That's what Davidson feels like. Okay? And this drives us to prove ourselves, to not know what it means to be good enough, to not know what it means to be enough in any relationship that we have. So twice a year, um, all of the campus ministers for RUF gather for this thing called training. And there's a week where we hang out in a hotel conference room, um, and we fly in the speaker. Um, the speaker speaks for, like a, it seems like the greatest gig ever, for like a couple mornings and takes off. Um, boy, I want that job. But anyway, so we bring these people in, and then we get to listen to them. We talk about it. One such guy was a Christian counselor who we brought in, and he told the story that is super helpful. Okay, he told a story about a client. This client is like the type A, grinder, hard worker, successful executive type. He goes to counseling with this guy, and they're kind of talking about life, and he tells him a true story of what it felt like to be him as a boy, and it was a baseball game. Okay, and I just want you to think about, like, a lot of us have a story like this. Okay, so this is a true story uh, about a baseball game, what happened after. Okay, he, this, this boy, this man, when he was a child, had four at-bats that game. Okay, four at bats. He hit three home runs and a triple. Okay, <laughs> so he was feeling pretty good about himself. He gets into the car. The car doors close. His dad starts up the engine. He turns around, looks into the back seat. First thing he does is he says, "What happened to that last at bat? What went on there?" That kind of story that a lot of us share with different details 
is enough to lead someone to think that value depends on performance. To always think, I can make it better. If I try harder, I can dig myself out. I can, pride. Or I can't make it better. What if I fail? I'm failing. The hole's too deep. Despair. So let me give a couple questions from a, a woman named Heather Peterson in an article about like what it means to not have a transactional faith. Okay, These are just a couple diagnostic questions that I'm kind of drawing from this article. And I want to see where these resonate. Um, for me, it was very uh, apparent. <laughs> Do I get resentful about how busy I am for other people who take it for granted? Group projects, anyone? Okay. Do I struggle to accept emails with editing mistakes in them? How about an unmade bed? How about not getting to my workout today? Or saving homework till tomorrow? Do I feel like God is just so demanding, this kind of all-encompassing excellence, whether I know him or not? Do I feel like life punishes me? God punishes me when things go wrong. Like, I could have done better, but I didn't, and therefore things are terrible. Or like, if I just mess up one little bit, then life is just going to totally screw up. Do you find yourself, do I find myself hiding past behaviors or current inappropriate desires? Do I hide them from God, and do I hide them from close friends? Do I believe that people might love me, but they don't really like me? Justification, this is so important, listen to this. Justification shouts this, shouts it. Jesus came, Jesus was delivered up for people like me. Resentful people, people who hate mediocre other people, people who think God's not always good and sometimes demanding, people who have a past, people who worry too much about what other people think of him of them, Jesus was resurrected for people like that. People like me, perhaps people like you. Justification, therefore, is truly an undeserved gift. It's what Brennan Manning calls a vulgar grace. Vulgar. Okay? Here's what he means. A grace that amazes as it offends. Vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such, it will always be the banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. (laughs) Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and we puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. All right. So that's where I am. Justification is an old road. Justification is also an undeserved gift. And and this is all to say that justification is actually a relationship. It's a state of being versus something we do. Okay? This is huge. If you've met with me one-on-one, you've heard this a little bit. I'm going to do it a little differently. Okay? But this is what it's about. Okay? Look at verses 16 through 17. They underline that justification to be counted righteous with God depends on faith in who in a God who gives life from the dead, even the resurrection, Jesus who establishes justification for us. Does that make sense? 
So they underline that, but there's kind of, they go further, okay? They say this, a relationship with God by faith counteracts two things. One, individual boasting, that pride and despair loop based on personal performance and competition, okay? Second, a relationship with God by faith dismantles plural boasting, the plural boasting of identity politics, okay? So this is what I mean. Whether that primary identity is racial, sexual, political, economic, or national, there is no room and justification for prejudice, and there is no room and justification for shaming other people. Jesus cannot be reduced to one singular cause, nor is he the patron saint of one particular people, one particular social program, one particular political party line. You see, this is what's so fascinating. In verse 16, you read about the adherent of the law, which refers to the Jewish Christians, and then you read about the one who shares the faith of Abraham, which refers to the non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. And guess what verses 16 and 17 are saying? Both ethnicities, both nations, both peoples, both parties equally share Abraham as a spiritual father. A father not according to the flesh, but a, a spiritual father, right? Okay? We share the family of God. God's our father, Jesus is our older brother, and we all kind of partake in the Holy Spirit together. Listen to the way that REF campus minister, former campus minister Jason Harris puts it. When we're united to Christ by faith, God adopts us into his family. All the love, all the acceptance, all the praise, all the delight that God has for his son, he now showers on his adopted children. Okay? Let's just, can we just think about what that means for a second? What does that mean? Like, you hear that, you kind of go, what is that? I'm unpacking this tonight, because I want you to take it away. Okay? Think about, did God love Jesus any less than when he, when he became a man? How about, did God love Jesus more when he did a miracle? Did he love him more when he was raised from the dead? Did God love Jesus or approve of him any way differently due to anything at all that Jesus did in heaven or on earth? Ever. No. (laughs) No is the answer. God has loved, God loves, God will love Jesus, because Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Okay? Do you get that his love for Jesus was based on a relationship, a state of being, not a doing? So likewise, think about it this way. God has loved, God is loving, God will love you as his adopted son or daughter. Will that fluctuate based on a good day or a bad day? No. Not at all. You get what you want without having to work for it. That's the scandal of grace. That's the scandal of what this whole thing of justification is about. Like, unlike every other world religion, unlike every other system of human thought I've ever studied, and I've studied a lot of them, okay, didn't come to this naturally, Christianity says you are not loved because you're qualified. You're qualified because you're loved. You're not loved because you're qualified. You're qualified because you're loved. Okay? God loves me. Okay? God's love qualifies the unqualified every one of us. Does that make sense? Like you're not meeting a mark, but he's changing you to surpass that mark because he cares a lot about you. Okay? 
so look at this. Last point. I can't, you can't believe it. I got through four points on this in about the time, time that we're supposed to do. Okay? Graduating seniors, the rest of us slogging away, yet another end of a semester. Okay? Paul has told us to keep going back to justification, to keep going to the old road, the undeserved gift, that relationship that's about being versus doing. And finally, Paul tells us that you get to keep justifications forever. That the everlast that's an everlasting ancient way. Okay, you can't mess it up. <laughs> it, no matter what justification is there for us. Okay, look with me the way that Paul describes Abraham's faith. Okay? And hope he believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. It's tempting there to think that we're reading the book of Jubilees again in the airbrush version of Abraham, isn't it? But that's Paul in the Bible describing Abraham, the same Abraham again who fearfully pimped out Sarah, who cackled at God's plans, who hooked up with Hagar just to get a son. Yet, many, many, many people I read from many, many parts of the Christian tradition all say the same thing. Abraham's faith is real, even as his doubts are real. Because his faith overall went on believing in the God who gives life to the dead and creates something out of nothing. But how do you endure? How does your faith endure no matter where you are in life right now? I really appreciate one of those commentators, and you know he's old because he goes by his initials, C.E.B. Cranfield. <laughs> okay? C.E.B. Cranfield. Do you think they call him Keb? I don't know. I just That's my thought. Um <laughs> understands verse 20 and says, look, our faith grows, actually. It grows stronger because it rests on, is empowered by, controlled, overpowered, held, sustained by God's promises. His vertical edicts of not guilty and you're enough fuels faith. <laughs> so it's interesting, the, more, the closer you get to the promises, the more this thing works, okay? I've now had two things, major things in my life break. My car and my watch, okay? And they broke, they broke for the same reason. The battery was not close enough, literally by a screw in both cases, to the, to the way in which the whatever mechanism works at the clock, the screw, the screw did not cl- attach close enough to the actual charges in the car. I'm, I'm losing it here. But that's the point, <laughs> okay? The point is it was not close enough, and our faith needs to get as close. It needs to nestle next to the battery of God's promises, okay? Otherwise, you will live a life like mine, which has been totally chaotic the last few days. Okay? This means even in our faith, we cannot justify ourselves. Okay? This means by grace, through faith, is the way that salvation works. Therefore, Abraham-sized doubts, Abraham-like or unlike faithful failures, don't disqualify you. This is so important to take away. You had a bad Saturday night. You had a few bad Saturday nights. You had a terrible Sunday morning, a few terrible Monday mornings. Don't give up. Don't give up. Try again. Trust again. Why? You're not disqualified. Jesus' arms are open. The church, no matter how snotty they are, is open to you. There is a church for you. There are people for you to try again at Christianity. Okay, and let me, I'm going to end with this, sort of. Listen to the way that Robert Capon puts it, or Capon, okay? It's long, but it's worth it. Trust him. And when you have done that, you're living a life of grace. No matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you have, no matter how many suspicions you have, 
that you bought a pen with no pig in it, no matter how much heaviness or sadness your, your lapses, vices, indispositions, bratty whining may cause you, you believe simply that somebody else by his death and resurrection has made it all right, and you just say thank you, and then you just shut up. The whole slop closet full of mildewed performances, which is all I have to offer, all you have to offer, is simply your death. It is Jesus who is your life. If he refused to condemn you because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly. You can fail certainly. And therefore, and still live because of life of grace. You can fold up spiritually, morally, and intellectually and still be safe. Because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection of life, that makes you his cup of tea. What would it look like to live this this time of year? What would it look like when we think about finding a career? When we think about final papers and final exams, when we look up at the cosmic bench and we see it occupied and we see the judge smiling and dismissing the court with joy, flooding the streets with joy and dancing, a block party. Justification turns making good grades, achieving our goals, enhancing our sex appeal, being authentic, serving others, and perhaps just simply proving our social media presence it turns all of these things from relentless pressure to a deep breath of relief. What if, what if this time of year, what if this stage of your life felt like coloring at the kitchen table again? Stick figures and scribble-scrabble are enough. They still make the fridge. Do you know why? I'm a dad, and I can tell you why. Your daddy loves you. He loves you so much that he brags about your scribble, scrabble, and your stick figures to all of the angels who are way better than you and me. What would it look like to believe that? And what would it look like to study and to live out of that? Breathe. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time to just talk about your love for us, to talk about something that's so hard to grasp that we fight and we fight and we fight, um, but it's just so needed. And I pray that you would be with us who hit the triple and feel like we should have hit a home run. Be with us. And I pray especially now for the seniors, and I pray that you'd be with them in particular. As they look at that first job, as they look at that first grad school, they look at what their life is looking like, maybe it's planned, maybe it's unplanned, I pray that you'd be with them. I pray that they'd feel your peace and your presence, that they'd know that the verdict of their life, that their banner reads loved and approved and valuable and worth it, that you think that they've got it what it takes in Jesus. And I pray that you would help them to grab hold of that and to not listen to all the uncles and the aunts, <laughs> to not listen to all the well-meaning friends of par parents' friends. And I pray that you would help them to hear that you've got something special in store for them, even if it just looks like scribble-scrabble at the kitchen table. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.